What's up, everyone? Welcome to the latest episode of Note to Scene. This week, we got some news from a day to remember, Johnny Craig, an unfortunate death in the scene, then a radio rundown, and part two of our deep dive on how the Devil Wears Prada survived the scene. You can listen to the official Note to Scene radio show over at 94.3 The X in Colorado every Saturday night from 8 to 10 p.m. local time. If you want to check it out and you're not in the area, you can download the station's app. Just search 94.3 The X in the app store and tune in this Saturday. As always, you can listen to the songs mentioned during this episode on the Note to Scene Spotify playlist, and if you have any comments, questions, or requests for deep dives, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. Alright, so let's get started. Last week, A Day to Remember released their new single, Brick Wall, and gave a new release date for their new album, You're Welcome, which comes out now, March 5th, on Fueled by Ramen. This album has pretty much been a complete shit show since day one. It's gotten pushed back multiple times, bassist Josh Woodard has been accused of sexual misconduct, and the band refuses to acknowledge it. None of the previous three singles have stuck, and now we get this half-assed attempt at making a proto-hard rock song. It's all over the place, the mix sounds like shit, the lyrics are pretty elementary, and this artwork... It's just all a mess. They're going to keep people waiting for over a year and a half for this album now and have been doing themselves no favors with these singles. If the rest of the album is anything like the caliber of what they've put out, they can keep it. In other news, Johnny Craig was arrested last week. The official charge on the police documents was family violence. Actually played some phone tag and tracked down the police department in California that arrested him and asked for the police report of the incident, but for some reason the only info they'd give me was general stuff like date of arrest, bail amount, where he was being held, etc, etc. It was weird because police reports are public information. I've gotten them many times over the years for various stories, but there are a few circumstances where they wouldn't be available, so I'm not entirely sure what happened there. But he was released today, November 25th, and returned to Twitter in true Johnny Craig fashion. He said, you boys free. A fan replied saying, yay, I'm free from jail for domestic violence. Oof, Johnny. To which he replied, I fucking pushed her. Stop acting like I slapped a bitch. This dude is the purest definition of a scumbag. Do not support him. Some very sad news to report from the scene this week, on top of everything else. Aaron Melzer, who was the former screamer for the band Secrets, has died. The band confirmed the news in a statement on Twitter last night. Aaron featured on the band's sophomore album Fragile Figures, which came out on Rise Records in 2013. He was in the band for roughly two years, until he left in 2015. On to this week's radio rundown. MGK and Black Bear continue their rise on Top 40 Radio with My Ex's Best Friend, which jumped four spots to 25 this week. All Time Low have now spent a miraculous 10 weeks at number one on Alternative Radio, one of the ultimate underdog stories of 2020. Heidi K. Howe jumped past MGK to number four with Leave Me Alone. I've been telling you guys, they are onto something here. MGK's Bloody Valentine falls to number 5. I Prevail is duking it out with ACDC and Foo Fighters for the number 1 spot over at Rock Radio. Prevail falls to number 3 this week, but is still up over 2% in plays, so we'll see if it can hold up against two juggernaut Rock Radio bands. 
ask Alexandra is they don't want what we want moves from 13 to 15. Like I've said, since they submitted this song, this is a very safe top 10 bet. We'll just see how far it can make it up once it's there. Their record is number three, which they set with their last single, Anti-Socialist. Bad Omens drops from 19 to 22, while Bring Me the Horizon's Teardrops breaks even at 28. Architects Animals drops from 33 to 37 and pretty much broke even in plays, despite the drop in chart, which is what we're looking for when we get this low. Songs get such little spins down here that it's easy for positions to fluctuate up and down from week to week, but we just want to make sure that at the very least, they're breaking even in plays from the previous week. So on to this week's deep dive. Last week, we left off with the release of Dead Throne in September of 2011. It gave The Devil Wears Prada its highest first week of their career, 32,000 units and a number 10 debut on the top 200 chart. But remember, Roots sold 31,000 first week and absolutely shocked the industry. We knew Plagues was good for the band, but we didn't know it was 31,000 good. So for them to more than double from Plagues to With Roots, but break just over even a Dead Throne, that was an indicator that even though they were still maintaining some fans, their growth rate had been stifled big time. It makes sense. Dead Throne is a very different album than With Roots. To the band, it was a little more respectable than anything they had ever done before. Like we talked last week, the campaign for Throne was the first time we saw Mike shit on their previous albums, and that disdain for their early material only grew stronger as time went on. So in support of Throne, Prada went on a North American headliner with Whitechapel, Enter Shikari, and For Today. After this, they took part in the 2012 Mayhem Fest tour with Slayer, Slipknot, and As They Lay Dyings, and a few others. This was a big look for the band in continuing to distance themselves from the scene but there was something about these true metal fans and that they didn't gravitate to Prada. I'm not sure if they were aware that they used to be a Hot Topic metalcore band or that they were just turned off by the name because they knew it was a chick flick, but no matter how much they tried to widen the gap from the scene, the other side of heavy music just wouldn't let them into the club. But it was around this tour that Prada's long line of member instability began. The first original member to go was keyboardist James Bainey. Prada released a statement saying, With great deliberation and difficulty, we have decided to part ways with our keyboardist James Bainey. James will always be family to TDWP, being one of the most well-intentioned people we know. Our prayers to James in beginning a new chapter with his wife back home, and our endless gratitude to TDWP fans for understanding. We'll see you at a show soon. These statements are usually intentionally vague to not air out any potentially extraneous drama, but as we saw with the issues deep dive a few weeks ago, things tend to eventually bubble over, even if it's from a member that will unfortunately be fairly forgotten. People were assuming that he left on his own terms, and apparently his wife had even said some things online at the time backing that up. But according to him, that wasn't the case. Here's what he said. While I appreciate the support, one thing should be cleared up. Leaving the band was not actually my decision. The other members extended their prayers to my wife and I. However, she was not a factor in the process at all. I felt it necessary to deliver her from any prejudice surrounding the departure, but to also clarify that I have no intentions necessarily of staying home for future work. Thanks again for all the continued support. It wasn't much to go on, so like I said, people just move on. They forget. 
But James actually hit me up on Twitter last week saying he listened to the first part of the deep dive and responded to some other people who were talking about him in a tweet that I had sent out of a video of Prada performing at Cornerstone 2006 on the generator stage. Someone wrote, They gave him the boot. I guess he didn't really contribute. Didn't actually write the keys. Joey Sturgis wrote them. Joey actually quoted that tweet and replied, While I did contribute, it wasn't the majority. James was brilliant with keys and wrote great parts. James then responded to that and said, Thanks, man. I still think there is a lot of confusion about my time in the band. My contributions, my personality, why I'm not in it anymore. I've been wiped away, sort of. But I appreciate the acknowledgement. Now, it obviously seems like there is way more to unpack here than what has been said publicly, but it also seems like it's on a personal level, and I don't like to speculate about people's personal lives. So I'm going to leave James' time in the band as it is, but I definitely encourage you to go at him on Twitter, at Mariah Trunks, that's M-I-R-A-H-T-R-U-N-K-S, and just tell him thanks for everything he contributed to Prada during the first half of their career. The electronic element of this band really separated them from anything else in the scene at that time and truly helped usher in the next era of scene metalcore. So on May 21st, 2012, Prada announced they would be releasing a live CD DVD called Dead and Alive through Ferret in June. It would contain live footage filmed and recorded during their headliner for Dead Throne with Whitechapel and Shikari and For Today. So I never knew this, but during Prada's Audio Tree performance from 2018, Mike revealed that the footage was filmed during the Massachusetts date of the tour, but his vocals on the recording are actually from the Texas date of the tour, which was much earlier on in the run. Apparently Mike's voice was fried and he didn't sound too great at the Massachusetts date. But so after Dead and Alive, Prada went on a few tours with As I Lay Dying and For Today, and then announced their complete signing to Roadrunner Records in February of 2013. Roadrunner is owned by Warner Music Group. This is why you see Code Orange get billboards in Times Square and multiple Grammy nominations that make them look much larger than they actually are. But to be honest, Roadrunner hasn't done the best at actually building bands over the last decade. What was the last band that they actually broke? They are supposed to be the final remaining link between metal and major label world, but they just seem to rely on Slipknot and Korn to keep things floated. They've signed some dope young bands like Fever 333 and Higher Power, but the growth rate on those bands are a snail's pace compared to the rest of the industry. And why haven't they signed Knocked Loose or Vane yet? I actually talked to someone from Roadrunner in the summer of 2018 about Vane, and they said they were having some talks, but from the vibe I got, there was just no urgency or priority whatsoever. But regardless, Prada officially became a major label band in February of 2013. With the signing announcement came the news that they had already begun work on what would be their fifth full-length album. Adam D from Killswitch Engage and Matt Goldman, who was the go-to producer for a lot of Solid State and Tooth and Nail bands, would both serve as the record's producers. Mike Horanica gave a short quote at the time where he said, We've put so much time into the new songs already, and we're really happy with where things are sitting. I think with Roadrunner in the picture, it's only more encouraging as far as compiling a record that we can be proud of and a record that exists well as Dead Throne's successor. They officially entered the studio to begin the recording process in April of 2018. Doing this dive on Prada has been hilarious to uncover Mike's teasing before each release because he said before every album after Plagues through 818 that they would be darker. Here's what he said about the follow-up to Dead Throne in an interview with Noise Creep. 
I can tell you that I'm going further down the road as far as the misery and sadness of the lyrics. This will be darker than Dead Throne for sure. As true as that may or may not have been, I just think it's hilarious that that was the selling point in moving away from the scene. It's just darker and more miserable from here on out. But on June 15th, 2013, Prada announced that their new album would be released on September 17th. On July 24th, they revealed that it would be called 818. They offered two instant grat downloads if you pre-ordered the album, which contained Home for Grave and Martyrs. This was the first taste of the production on the album, and despite having two incredible minds behind the boards, Adam D. and Matt Goldman, there was something missing from these songs. Structurally, they were different than most of what they had done before. They definitely tried to do some more interesting guitar work, there weren't consistently massive hooks from Jeremy, and the evolution of Mike's voice had become noticeably evident. It still felt like Prada, but didn't all at the same time. Some of the magic from the first half of their career was just missing. And the mix was all over the place. The guitars weren't punching, they felt separated from the rest of the song. And the programming, whether it be orchestral or electronic parts, it just felt buried. Like, they weren't carrying their moments like they had on previous albums. I remember a good buddy of mine and I were so excited for this release at that time, but we didn't know strong structures or production quality and what made certain songs and albums sound the way they did. So we couldn't put our finger on what it was about 818 then, but we knew there was something missing. And we weren't alone. 818 dropped in September on Roadrunner and sold 16,000 units first week for a number 20 debut on the top 200. This marked basically a 50% decrease for the band from Dead Throne. That was a gut punch, and I think what affected Mike the most was that, in his mind, 818 was truly the best material Prada had ever released. So for it to come out and he only saw big portions of his fanbase jumping ship on them, I mean, that would have a negative impact on anyone. But in November and December, they headlined a North American run with The Ghost Inside, Volumes, and Texas in July. It was pretty much still just a House of Blues tour. Caps typically ranged from 1,200 to 2,000, but you can only do so many House of Blues sized tours before it becomes obvious that you're not growing. This is the level that so many scene bands have capped out at throughout the history of the scene. Prada could get beyond it as a support band for sure, but for the most part, they never really broke that ceiling as a headliner. In the spring of 2014, they headlined the Take Action tour with The Ghost Inside, I Killed the Prom Queen, and Danger Kids. They spent that summer on Warped. They still drew some pretty solid crowds that year, but anyone who was looking could tell the hype was less than when they played in 2009 after Roots came out. They were fairly inactive through the fall of 2014. They played a few dates in Mexico, but other than that, they were pretty quiet. In the spring of 2015, they made an interesting move by going on a five-year tour for their Zombie EP. Mike had been distancing Prada from their earlier material for a few years now, but they're already going to do an anniversary tour for the Zombie EP. It didn't make sense then, but it would make a little bit more sense later on in the year when they released a companion EP to Zombie. But this tour always struck me as odd because I would have thought Mike would be the last one to fall back on their early material for a tour grab. And that's what anniversary runs are. They're easy money. Because they work. Part of the hole that the scene fell in was that it started to become nostalgic around 2015, and it became stuck in a perpetual cycle of the industry and fans looking back instead of forward. Which, yeah, if you're on a downward trajectory, that's just a good business move. Go where the money is, and if it's in the past, that's where you go. 
But the problem was so many bands did that and only left a sliver of the scene that was still looking forward. I know there is a lot to unpack about Ronnie Radke, but in this instance, he played both sides of the coin perfectly. He said fuck it earlier this year when the drug in me is you was certified gold and went on an anniversary tour with Escape the Fate and The Word Alive. He even re-released a reimagined version of the title track and it trended on YouTube during the first 24 hours. He did this while Falling's newest single, Popular Monster, reached number one at rock radio in the US, giving the band their first number one of their career. All of this, plus Ronnie becoming a low-key star Twitch streamer, has culminated to make Falling in Reverse the biggest they've ever been by far. And to be honest, they're looking like the only band besides Bring Me the Horizon and still maybe All Time Low that has a chance at still breaking out of the scene. But we'll talk all about that at the top of 2021 when we do our annual Biggest Bands in the Scene episode, during which I rank the top 10 biggest groups that we have right now and explain why. But back to Prada. So they do the zombie anniversary run in the spring and also announced that they had re-signed to Rise Records. To give a little label recap at this point, they started with Rise, with Dear Love and Plagues, then Ferret for Roots and Zombie, Ferret and Roadrunner for Dead Throne, and just Roadrunner for 818, and then back to Rise now. And as we'll get to in a second, they made another label jump after this. So with the signing announcement came the news that they would release a concept EP in 2015 called Space, as well as that original guitarist Chris Ruby would be leaving the band. Here's what their statement said at the time. Fans, friends, listeners, at the end of October, upon completing our run of shows in Mexico, Chris decided that it was time to stay home and be with his wife and daughter. While losing a founding member might seem to be a bumpy transition to announce, we find ourselves terrifically proud and enthused to continue moving forward with touring and writing new material. The upcoming Space EP is a testament to what we're capable of and the always truthful fact that TDWP is a collective collaboration rather than any single member or component. We're happy to say that parting ways with Chris couldn't have been more amicable. We understand and wish him the very best at being with his family. In the meantime, our good friend Kyle is playing with us, a fine gentleman and an excellent guitarist who helped out tremendously in the making of Space EP. The Zombie 5 Tour is off to a fantastic start, and we look forward to seeing all of you at an upcoming show. Peace, Mike and the Pradas. I still laugh at how Mike signed off on that statement. He will literally never not have an identity crisis with his band's name. (laughs) But so Chris marked the second lineup change for the band. I could be wrong, but to me it doesn't seem like there wasn't any underlying factors in this split, unlike they had with James. And to my knowledge, Chris never released a statement of his own on the situation. So there was really nothing for fans to hang on to here. People moved on pretty quick, especially since it came in the middle of a flurry of other news, like Prada returning to Rise and the Space EP announcement. On top of all that, the band released a song for Record Store Day in 2015 called South of the City. The song actually still came out on Roadrunner and marked the final official release from the label for the band. They recorded the track over the course of four days, about an hour south of Chicago, hence the title, and bypassed most of their normal writing and recording habits in an attempt to create something less concise and methodical. I think the song itself is obviously a little underdeveloped due to how they created it, but the production on it is fantastic. I love the drum mix, it really drives the track. But then, the summer of 2015 brought on the shit show that was that year's Mayhem Festival. I can honestly do an entire episode about the 2015 Mayhem Tour, which ultimately led to its death. 
Prada were announced as a supporting band to Slayer and King Diamond, alongside Hell Yeah, Whitechapel, Die Artist Murder, Jungle Rot, Sister Sin, Sworn In, Shattered Sun, Feeder to the Sharks, Code Orange, and Kissing Candace. They had booked amphitheaters for most of the runs, so we're talking mostly over 20,000 cap venues. It would have been a massive look for a ton of bands on that run, but the problem was that nobody bought tickets. The attendance for these shows was absolutely miserable. I dug and dug, and for some reason I couldn't find any official box office numbers, but a couple weeks into the tour, videos started surfacing of Prada sets and how little people they were playing to. After the tour was done, there was a bit of a war of words between Slayer and the tour's organizers. Co-founder John Reese announced that it was the final Mayhem Festival, saying, All I know is we have all tried our damned hardest to make Mayhem a home for artists, a platform for bands to increase their fan base, and a place where people feel welcome. Slayer's Kerry King threw a few shots, as he does, saying, Do I know this tour wasn't booked correctly? Absolutely, I know this tour wasn't booked correctly. Gary Holt made the comment that usually there's the main stage, a second stage, a third stage, and then that piece of shit record stage. Now what they're calling a second stage is at best a fourth stage, and they're wondering why people aren't showing up. I think they waited too long and think all the talent that could have been on this took gigs in Europe. Kevin Lyman then jumped in and threw it back at Slayer, saying, The bands at the top all demand a certain level of fee to be on the tour. Unlike punk rock, metal never knows how to take a step back to move the whole scene forward. Yeah, we had to condense it. The expenses of putting on those shows had gotten high, so we had to push it all into the concourses. They don't want to build a fence outside for other stages anymore. Those things cost money. All of this to say that 2015 was basically a waste of a summer for Prada. They were already on a downturn in terms of commercial momentum, and to spend your prime touring months that year on a failed tour playing to incredibly small crowds that probably only wanted to see Slayer anyways, just didn't pan out well for the band at all. But after this, they released the Space EP on August 21st through Rise Records following two singles, Supernova and Alien. Dan Corniff produced the effort, Dan has a wild resume of working with everyone from Breaking Benjamin and Lamb of God to A Day to Remember and My Chemical Romance. This EP is so odd because it has so much of that old school TDWP magic. I don't know if Mike and the band just intentionally wrote it in throwback mindset, but even still they were missing two key members from that original era. But Jonathan Gehring, who would later become an official member of the band, absolutely nailed the programming and keys on the CP. They recreated the anxiety and heaviness of Zombie perfectly on space, and it was so refreshing to hear at that point. The EP actually managed to sell around 14,000 units first week. And like I said when I talked about the Zombie EP, these releases don't get the same money behind them in terms of a publicity push that albums do. So for this to come in the same ballpark as 818 was really exciting for fans. It felt like the band was returning to form a bit and people were engaged with Prada again. That fall, they returned to the scene on a co-headliner with Motionless and White and support from Upon a Burning Body, The Word Alive, and The Color Morale. Fast forward to March of 2016, and Prada had begun work on their next full-length album. They went with Dan Corneff again as the producer after the Space EP, and I was really, really excited about that. But later on during that summer, we got news that drummer Daniel Williams was no longer in the band. We learned later that he didn't even record on the album and actually left in the middle of it. 
Prada released a documentary called No Sun, No Moon that fans got as a download if they bought tickets to their 2017 headlining tour, but they uploaded it to their YouTube channel earlier this year and gave it to the general public for the first time. It documents the recording process for what would become Transit Blues and shows how Daniel had actually gone into the studio to record the album and left in the middle of it. From what I've been able to gather, it seems like Daniel wanted to revert more to the band's older sound for the record, and tensions between him and the other members grew so high that he packed his bag and just left in the middle of recording. Prada then managed to get a guy named Giuseppe Capolupo to come out and re-record anything Daniel had done and finish the rest of the album. I mentioned Giuseppe for a moment in part one of the dive last week and that he had played in a band called Demise of Eros. He also played in a fantastic southern metalcore band called Once Nothing and also in another fantastic metalcore band called Haste the Day. But so he learned 13 songs for the album in two days, practiced them for three hours, then flew out and recorded them all in two days. That is an incredible pace and Giuseppe is a ridiculously good drummer. He finds his pocket almost instantly and serves each song he plays on so well. So at this point, Prada had lost three original members, the lead guitarist, keyboardist, and drummer. But they didn't seem to mess a step in terms of productivity. They finished the album, played a handful of spring headline shows, and on July 2nd they released a new song called Daughter. Personally, I was a little disappointed. It felt like the Space EP version of an 818 song. I was hoping for a little bit more life, a little less downtrodden, low-end riffs and keys, bigger melody, etc, etc. But a few days after this, they officially announced their new album would be called Transit Blues, and it'd come out on October 7th through Rise Records. I actually reviewed this album for Alternative Press and interviewed Mike about it. This was after we stopped giving stars or ratings for reviews, which, quick sidebar about that particular shit show. There was a point where I was told if I wasn't gonna give an album at least 3.5 stars, they would give it to someone else. And even though that came from AP, I don't even want to spin it on them. That's a big fuck you to labels who have held media outlets hostage for years now. Here's how it works for anyone who doesn't know. If you are a print magazine, you need people to buy ads in order to keep your lights on. Record labels buy a ton of ad space every month. The more the scene began to collapse over the last decade, the more advertisers jumped ship. Some of the last ones that were around were labels, and if you said anything negative about one of their artists, like a poor review for example, they had the power to pull their ads, and if enough ads were pulled, you eventually have to shut down. See, media used to have power over the labels. It was the opposite. In the 80s, if Rolling Stone wrote a bad review about your album, your cycle was just completely fucked. But even in the mid-2000s, during Emo's peak and into the late 2000s, AP was having difficulty coming up with enough original content for each issue to outweigh the amount of ads they had. Didn't matter if they lost a few ad buys here or there, they had plenty of other offers to make up for it. That's why Sleeping With Siren's debut album was given a one-star review by Alternative Press. But it's not only ad money that labels and management will threaten you with, they'll take away access to artists too. I can't tell you how many factual stories I've written over the years that were taken down because the artist's management or label threatened the relationship with the outlet if it wasn't removed. And the lack of revenue across the entire music media industry is evident. All you have to do is look. Billboard has a paywall now. XXL, the magazine that I work for, used to be monthly, now it's quarterly. All the scene blogs are dead. The list goes on, and it all comes back to money, or specifically, the lack of it. But anyway, 
back to Prada. When I interviewed Mike, it was a shitty 15-minute phoner, which I hate because the artist is already disinterested before they even get on the phone because they've either just gotten off of another 15-minute phoner or have another one right after this one, or both. And you just can't get deep into a conversation with an artist and get any real good bits out of them because as soon as you feel like you're starting to riff well with them, it's over. It's kind of like speed dating, but you're the only one who actually wants to be there. But I asked him about working with Dan and coming back to Rise Records, and I also asked him about a song off Transit called Worldwide, which is still by far my favorite song from the album. It was really interesting to me because it felt like something Rise could send to rock radio if they wanted to, and I think it actually would have worked. But Mike just kind of laughed it off when I brought it up and made it seem like that song was just something they threw together in five minutes and didn't put much effort into. But lo and behold, what's the biggest song off the album Streamwise to date? Worldwide. It has 4.3 million streams on Spotify, and the next biggest song off the album is Daughter with 1.6 million. But I try not to put too much stock into short phoners because, like I said, they are destined to fail in terms of getting deep into a conversation. So Transit Blues did roughly 10,000 units first week and debuted at number 56 on the top 200, another drop down from 818, and less than a third of what they did on Dead Throne. So, in August of 2016, the band went out with Memphis Mayfire, Silverstein, and Like Moss the Flames. In the spring of 2017, they opened a North American Killswitch Engage and Anthrax tour. For the most part, they were still playing House of Blue size slash slightly bigger caps, but they were playing to a pretty different audience, which is a good thing. In the fall of 2017, they headlined a North American tour with Vale Amaya and Thousand Below. This was a step below a House of Blues tour. They played Gramercy Theater in New York, which is a 500 cap. They played Bottom Lounge in Chicago, which is a 700 cap. So you can see the size decrease in venues when it comes to a Prada headliner at that point. In November, they were announced as the opening act for a Data Remembers 15-year anniversary tour. Save for if they lock in a tour opening for Slipknot or some other big opening slot, this will probably be the last time Prada ever play venues this big. A Day to Remember is typically a 5,000 plus cap band, give or take a few here and there around the country, but that gives you an idea of the size difference between these two bands at this point. After that, Mike had spent some of the summer focusing on his post-punk side project he has with Prada guitarist Kyle Cypress called God Alone. They actually released a full-length album through Rise Records and did some touring. They had done a very low-end run in 2016 when Mike started the project with another post-punk band called No, spelled N-E-A-U-X, which featured Sierra Kusterbeck, for those who don't know, used to be in the vocalist for Versa Emerge. She will actually cross paths with Prada again here in a second as well. But in August of 2018, TDWP helped open a Parkway Drive North American tour with Polaris, and then August Burns Red was the direct support. A month later, Prada announced that they had left Rise Records yet again and had signed to Solid State. It's funny how things come full circle sometimes. I mentioned on the part one dive last week that Prada was a big gateway band for me because I grew up a Solid State stan, and there weren't many other youth group bands outside of that circle. But Prada showed me Rise Records, who had Before Their Eyes and Burden of a Day at that time, and the floodgates opened after that. In the fall of 2018, Prada went on an anniversary tour for With Roots, even though it wasn't technically 10 years yet, so they couldn't call it a 10-year anniversary tour, but they took out Fit for a King in 68, which is a really dope lineup. 
They went on a quick second leg of that tour in November and December of 2018 as well, playing much of the same cap venues of their 2017 headliner with Vale Amaya and Thousand Below. In December, Mike revealed that the band was scheduled to head into the studio to record their new album in the spring and hoped to have it out by November of 2019. The band produced the album themselves with a co-credit from Sonny DePerry, who is kind of known as the go-to guy for Portugal the Man. Prada officially announced that the album would be titled The Act and released on October 11th through Solid State. The first single they dropped from the record is still my favorite song on it, called Lines of My Hands, and it actually features Sierra Kusterbeck, who I mentioned Mike had toured with in 2016. This is a post-hardcore song. We'd never really seen Prada in this kind of element before, and they absolutely drove it home. The lead riff drives the song, drum mix feels incredibly natural and serves the track really well, the chorus hook is massive. Honestly, my least favorite part about the song and the act as a whole is Mike screams. I think he and Jeremy should just sing from here on out. But Sierra's return to the scene sounds like she hadn't missed a beat in over the last decade. And all of a sudden, after this, myself and a lot of others were genuinely excited about Prada again. The response to this song was overwhelmingly positive for the band, and I figured this would be the least heavy song on the album, but nope. The act really nears simply being a rock album. It's got rough edges, but feels clean at the same time. The mix on this record is really something to talk about. I don't know if the drums are live or if they're sampled over, but if they aren't live, that sample is incredible. They feel so natural and somehow manage to mesh so well with the programming throughout the record. Sometimes when you get that raw sound and try to incorporate programming elements, it can feel like two different eras clashing with one another, but somehow this record feels like an antique and brand new all at the same time. They officially released the act on October 11th through Solid State. Now, it managed to sell 9,200 units first week, essentially breaking even with Transit Blues. I absolutely counted Prada out at this point. I thought for sure they would sell under 5,000 for this record and they'd go on hiatus without even saying it publicly. But they are surviving on their own terms. Nobody saw the act coming. It's essentially a post-rock album with death metal artwork. Prada is showing us how a scene metalcore band can grow up. They're done growing and are probably going to play between 400 and 700 cap venues the rest of their career once the pandemic is over. But as of right now, they aren't losing any momentum. And for a band that came from the scene and is 15 years into their career, you can't ask for more than that. Prada spent the tail end of 2019 on a North American headlining tour with Norma Jean and Gideon as support. They were also supposed to spend the spring supporting We Came As Romans on their To Plant A Seed 10-year tour, but the pandemic has now pushed that back to February and March of 2021, and I can tell you right now there is absolutely no way in hell this thing is happening then either. So hopefully they can get it rescheduled again for later next year and the country has its shit together by then. Most recently, Prada performed two live streams, one where they played Roots in full and another where they played Zombie in space back to back. Under Oath was one of the first bands from the scene to do big production live streams over the summer, and they rolled out merch, the whole nine yards, and I'll just say that it was incredibly lucrative for them. If bands do these streams right and make them as big of productions as possible, it can pay off for them too. Architects just did one at Royal Albert Hall, and it felt like watching a band perform on another planet. Best live stream I've seen yet by miles. But for what Prada could do, their streams were great. 
and any fan of the band would enjoy it. If you have a favorite band, now is the time to find ways to support them. If they're doing a live stream, I highly recommend you flip the bill for access. It helps them more than you know. But like I said, Prada is learning how to survive the scene and they're doing it on their own terms. I cannot wait to see what they have in store for their next album. The fact that they're not married to being a metalcore band opens so many new creative doors. The future really is a blank canvas for them. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any requests for deep dives, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. I've been getting a lot more tweets and emails over the last couple weeks, and it has been really encouraging to keep the show going. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Note to Scene on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it very much. Until next week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon.